Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm Megan Messerly, and welcome to our fifth episode. Each week, we discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming. And if our weekly podcast isn't enough for you, you can read us online daily at thenevadaindependent.com. I'm joined tonight in Carson City by my colleagues and roommates, Michelle Rendells and Riley Snyder. Hey, guys. Hello. Hi, Megan. The editor, John Ralston, has again abandoned us, so we're flying solo tonight. Okay, let's dive in. First, we're going to talk a little bit about what happened this week. So on Monday, you guys sat through a very, very lengthy meeting of what's called the Economic Forum, where they talked about the state's budget. For all of our listeners who don't know what the Economic Forum is, can you guys give them a little background on what it is and what its purpose is? Sure. So the Economic Forum is this group of five independent economists who like reside outside of state government. They have normal jobs. And bas- basically, they've been tasked by the legislature to put together revenue projections and to tell the state legislature how much money they're going to have to budget. For those that don't know, Nevada has a balanced budget amendment in its constitution, so we can't spend more than we take in. Um, so a lot of people look to the economic forum to get an idea of how much money, you know, we have to spend. They meet in December and they give an initial projection. The meeting on Monday was their final projection where they locked in how much money lawmakers have to spend. And then over the next 30 or so days uh, of the session. So where are we based on those projections that the economists gave out on Monday? It's all good. Thank you, President Trump. We're uh, (laughs) 140 (laughs) million over the December projections. So it's about a 1.2% bump. Uh, Michelle really did a deep dive into all the different tax categories we have, which is really fascinating stuff to see what's doing well and what's not. We're doing really well on the commerce tax. It's a, it's a tax on the gross receipts or gross revenue of businesses that was approved somewhat controversially, very controversially last session. Um, and yeah, it's lawmakers are really happy. Now the discussion turns to what are we going to spend all this extra money on? We got an extra uh, $44 million for this fiscal year, which is good because there's a lot of catch-ups. Um, case growth and enrollment growth in, in the K-12 education budget accounts and uh, state Medicaid spending. So it, it was good news for the budget side of folks. We don't have to worry about making like, you know, an unexpected $50 million cut or anything like that. Sure. Michelle, can you give us some overview of what the other types of taxes are for people who don't know, you know, what taxes actually make up our state's budget? So the biggest source of the revenue is the sales tax. That accounts for one-third of all the general fund revenue we get. Um, Gaming taxes, of course, you know, people say, hey, casinos, let's tax them. So they are taxed pretty heavily about, uh, they account for about 18.5% of the revenue that comes in the general fund. Um, Insurance premiums are taxed, that's a major source. Um, Live entertainment, uh, if you've gone to a a show, you get an extra tax in your ticket. Um, as Riley mentioned, the new commerce tax um, is uh, bringing in some some revenue. Then we've got a bunch of tiny taxes, um, everything from, you know, a fee on your Uber or taxi ride, um, you know, to just all sorts of other random small um, taxes and fees throughout state government. So what we found was that, you know, the I guess the rising tide lifts all ships. So the economy is kind of strong right now. Job growth is strong. Um, wages, which have been stagnant for a long time, are finally starting to move. Um, so this really strong picture. Um, I think one of the funny things was, you know, they said, you know, you can't keep going up, and, and we're eight years or something into a growth cycle. So it was a little bit scary when they said, you're probably going to have a recession in 2019 um, if Trump implements his tax plan. 
maybe that'll extend that cycle out a little more, a year or two, and so the recession wouldn't happen till a little later. Um, so all this stuff is kind of going on. But overall, it was it was really good news um, for Nevada. It's always nice to have more money than you expected. Um, and some people said, well, you should give that money right back to Nevadans in the form of a tax cut. But I, I, legislators are got their eyes set on on some other things they want to spend that money on. Yeah. I wanted to ask you guys, what was the reaction like from legislative leadership and from the governor? I mean, how did they respond to this news? Basically, everyone was sort of in agreement that this money should go towards the weighted funding formula, which you two um, have explained very well in a video on the Nevada Independence YouTube page. Go watch it if you haven't. Um, Yeah, the governor, Democratic leaders, Republican leaders were all sort of in agreement that that's kind of where the extra money should go. I did enjoy Americans for Prosperity wanted us all to get like a, you know, $40 check in the mail from the state government. But it doesn't look like that's really in in play at all. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that, the extra money that we had for this year, the, the sort of $40 million and what happens with that? I know some people were saying, you know, maybe we'll have $140 million to work with, but it sounds like that needs to go to other programs. I mean, is that the case? Yeah. Uh, what we learned from uh, Assembly Minority Leader Paul Anderson was that really, you know, when you look at all the things the Ways and Means Committee needs to spend, things that went over budget this year, um, and this is not fun stuff. This is, you know it costs more to fight wildfires this year, or there was a flood and we had to send more people out to do emergency management. Um, you know, we, we somehow got the count wrong with the Department of Education, so, um, you know, you're going to have to put more money than you expected. So it's all this kind of, uh, it's a bit of a drag, it's not the fun stuff, um, but we have to deal with, you know, kind of closing the budget, paying the bills for 2017. So really what's in play, it sounds like, is the um, $95.7 million that is uh, projected for the upcoming biennium. So Sandoval had, you know, his $8.1 billion budget, so this is a, a little extra beyond that. Right, and that's what would go to the weighted funding formula, could go to the weighting f- weighted funding formula. Um, could you explain a little bit about how that would work? Because I know there's this whole, you know, the money follows the student idea, but, you know, $95 million isn't that much money in the grander scheme of things. What would they do with that money? What would that look like? So one of the big goals for groups like the Clark County Education Association was let's get this weighted funding formula going. And for those that don't know or haven't watched the YouTube video yet, um, the weighted funding formula is something where, Um, instead of just giving a flat amount for every student and maybe adding some extra programs in certain needy schools, what you would do is you'd say a student has a special need such as a disability or they're an English language learner or they're at risk, they're, you know, they're from a low-income family. So then you multiply the base amount of funding times, say, 1.5. So the students with the additional needs would get some additional money that follows them around, regardless of what school they're at. So that's the weighted funding formula. They want to move towards this, you know, four years down the road, but, um, you know, a couple of the Democrats want to do it now. Uh, It would cost $1.1 billion to do it now. We don't have that money. That wasn't in the budget. Um, But Sandoval said, hey, I want to put the money towards this. Um, So anyways, right now the, the issue is, okay, how do you do it now that you don't have $1.1 billion you have? This $95 million, you may have some money that Sandoval had designated. Um, there's $72 million that he wanted to go towards Zoom, toward new Zoom schools, new victory schools. What are those again? Uh, Zoom schools are for English language learners, high, 
schools with high density of English language learners. And then victory is for uh, schools in the poorest 20 zip codes in the state. So anyways, Sandoval wanted to expand that, put more schools in those programs, um, but he might be willing to have that money. Instead, go to the weighted funding formula. So the issue is, okay, how do you distribute this? How do you choose the students that get the money that follows them around for the immediate future, since you can't give it to everybody right now? Right, yeah, that makes sense. As far as, you know, some of these other, we, we've seen all of these bills that are in Senate Finance and Assembly Ways and Means right now. You know, they they have fiscal notes attached to them. You know, they, they might need funding. I mean, what do we think is going to happen with those as far as, you know, these measures Democrats have put forward that do need funding that's, you know, not in the budget? Well, I think some of them will get funding, but as we've discussed in the past, it's they don't really depart that far from Governor Sandoval's budget typically. I think we've heard some people say it's about 3% of the budget that they really kind of play around with and the rest they kind of just keep intact. So it's a long process. The agencies have been submitting their budgets for months and months and months. So it's been a lot of work already done. Um, you don't want to disrupt it too much. Um, so we'll see how, how many of these actually get funded. There's yeah. a lot of requests. There's a lot of them that do get fiscal notes, and we've talked about it and written about it before. And for those that don't know, fiscal notes are... Um, essentially little reports that state agencies or state boards will put on a bill saying it's going to cost this much to implement and here's why. Bills change uh, from when they're first introduced. They get amended. They get changed. A lot of them get sent to Ways and Means or the Finance the Budget Committees, and those are taken out. So there are a lot of bills in those committees at this point, but a lot of them are going to be changed or a lot of them are just things that have to wait until the end of session, like those that are forming these like interim committees that meet and go over specific issues when the legislature's out of session. They... I think they have like five or six proposed ones and they can only do three because that's what they have the budget for. So these things just kind of take time um, and they can't really do it before what they know the budget revenue is going to be. So now that that's happened on Monday, they can kind of actually proceed and go forward. Right. So I wanted to ask you, kind of relatedly, Riley, you wrote about this report that came out this week from the Pew Charitable Trust, and it said that Nevada's falling behind when it comes to keeping tabs on which tax abatements are giving out, giving us the most bang for our buck. Um, the Economic Forum talked about some of these abatements. What's going on with that? What, what did that report say? Yeah, so Pew put out a report on Wednesday where they ranked states if they were trailing or leading on basically oversight and disclosure of tax incentives. So Nevada is trailing, shocker, we're at the bottom of another bad list. Uh, basically what the report is getting at is whether or not there's legislative overnight oversight of tax incentives. Now, there is a state agency that implements tax incentives. They do the application process. They do that. They have their own internal process. But there's no specific legislative oversight branch for tax incentives. And that's important because tax incentives have grown massively. Like the one everyone thinks of is Tesla, the Gigafactory in northern Nevada, there's Faraday, but there's actually 257 different tax incentives that businesses can apply for. A lot of times these things fall under the radar. The legislators, the people we elect to kind of, you know, oversee the state budget, they get to spend half an hour, like, on the back of an informational packet is how the one of the bill sponsors put it to me. So there is a, a movement this session to try and get an interim committee that would basically just be dedicated to going through all the incentives, seeing which ones are working, which ones aren't. Uh, the state's economic de development department is on board. It, as I said before, it's just going to fall into whether or not they have the money to do that. And if they want to make it a priority, there's other committees on like juvenile justice and there's other things they might want to take up. So that it, it was an interesting story. It's interesting to see because that's $140 million is, is the projected tax incentive cut out of the budget. That's how much money we got, you know, to 
in, in extra funds from the economic forum. So like that, well, in like the grand scheme of the budget, it's not a huge amount. It's still pretty significant. You can do a lot of things with $140 million. Right. Yeah. So we'll have to see how that goes. And that's Democratic Assemblywoman Irene Bustamante Adams' bill, right? Yeah. She's a sponsor. Okay. One of the interesting things, though, that we learned um, from the economic forum is that Tesla, you know, has been creating this boom in the Reno area. And so there was a lot of graphs we were seeing, um, kind of a lot of evidence that, you know, in a lot of ways that incentive at least has been creating a mini boom um, and a lot of demand for housing up in in northern Nevada. I enjoyed uh, tweeting that graph, and I think like three of the five members of Reno City Council retweeted me, so small victories. <laughs> happy thing for Reno. Right? Indeed. Well, one other thing that I wanted to talk about that I covered this week was everything that's been happening on this major pharmaceutical bill, and I know I've been talking to you guys about it here and there, you know, and I'm sure some people have been following along um, what's been happening with it, but there's just been a lot of developments on that this week. Um, earlier this week, Democratic Senator Ivana Cancela, who sponsored this bill, SB 265, announced that she was making a major amendment to her bill. One of the significant provisions of it would have controlled the prices of diabetes drugs, um, insulin and another type of uh, diabetes-related drug. Uh, and essentially, if the prices of those drugs increased too much over a year, manufacturers would have been required to reimburse patients or insurers for that those costs of those increases. Uh, there was a notice that the Legislative Council Bureau staff, the sort of uh, legal and uh, staff of the legislature, uh, gave to Senator Kinsella over the weekend and let her know of uh, two potential constitutional issues with the bill, one having to do with the Interstate Commerce Clause, another having to do with this doctrine of federal preemption, which basically just says that when federal and state laws are in conflict, the federal law trumps the state law. The legislative staff informed Senator Kinsella about this, and she announced on Tuesday that she would actually be taking that provision out of the bill. She's still hopeful that there might be a way to somehow work it back in there. She really likes the rebate system. A lot of diabetes patients testified during the hearing on that bill and said, you know, the prices of our drugs are going up. We need a way to stop this. So she's still hopeful that there's a way that that could happen. But right now, that's sort of in limbo. And there was actually a hearing on the bill this week um, in Senate Health and Human Services, and it finally got its first vote. It was exempted from legislative deadlines, as you guys know. So it's been sort of just waiting, sitting there for further action. And so it finally did get a vote this week. And so now the question is, where does it go from there? Uh, the Republican Senate leader, Michael Roberson, has sort of expressed his desire to amend the bill or see a different form of the bill come forward, including a different kind of transparency. The bill also has these transparency provisions, not only for pharmaceutical manufacturers, but for these other groups called pharmacy benefit managers, which is basically just a fancy term for these middlemen in the drug pricing process. They, they play a role between the actual manufacturers and the insurers. Senator Roberson would like to see them included in this transparency legislation. There's a lot of debate about, you know, how drug pricing is set, and a lot of this information isn't public. So he wants to see that included in the bill as well. And, you know, we're not really sure where that's that's going to go, if that's something that'll be worked into this bill. If he's mentioned, you know, he has, these, he has emergency bills, so he could possibly bring that forward on his own. So we really don't know what form that's going to take. He hasn't given us a lot of, you know, guidance on where he's going with that. Um, but it was a concern that some of the Republican senators mentioned during that Tuesday hearing. So that's something that I know we'll be keep, keeping our eyes on. I'll be keeping my eye on as, you know, all this continues to develop. And the bill passed out, like, with pretty 
bipartisan support, right, at a committee? It did, yeah. So there are five people on Senate Health and Human Services. Three are Democrats, two are Republicans, and it actually passed on a four-to-one vote. So Republican Senator Scott Hammond voted for it, saying that he hoped that the bill would have this PBM, the pharmacy benefit manager, transparency added into it by the time it reaches the floor. He said he remained hopeful that it would be a yes vote once it re- well, he would remain a yes vote on the Senate floor as well. Um, Republican Senator Joe Hardy, the other Republican on the committee, sort of said the opposite, which is that he was going to vote no during committee, but that he was hopeful that he would get to yes if that change was made by the time it gets to the floor. And, you know, Senator Cancella said, you know, she's open to those conversations, but, you know, it sort of remains to be seen what happens with that. So, Megan, you've done a lot of reporting on this, which is the most obvious thing I'm going to say on this podcast. Um, (laughs) But one question I have for you on this pharmaceutical bill is that a lot of like the discussion and a lot of people's understanding of this had to do with the price controls of diabetes drugs, right? That's something everyone can kind of grasp. Right. So now that that's been amended out, what is still in the bill that's causing the pharmaceutical industry to kind of freak out, right? Like pharma's running promoted tweets. There's like culinary union is running like uh, advertisements in, in senators' districts. So what, why is it still such a big deal? What's in the bill that, that would make such a big change in the industry. Right. And you're right on that. A lot of the discussion so far has focused on the price control part of it just because it's never been done anywhere. Price controls, there's no model for price controls on pharmaceutical drugs. So a lot of the attention had been focused on that issue. But the the bill actually does several other different things. One of them was that transparency provision I alluded to earlier. Basically ask pharmaceutical companies that make these diabetes drugs to report certain numbers to the state. So like the cost of research and development, the cost of actually producing the drugs. So the sort of data on what it actually costs to make to get a sense of, you know, are these prices fair? You know, what kind of an investment are the companies having to make? And and the goal of that is that if there's more transparency about the costs that go into it, there might be, you know, some impact on drug pricing. And that's something that Senator Kinsella has said is that, you know, when there's more transparency, prices go down. And so, so that's sort of the argument behind that. There's also another provision that uh, would require more transparency from healthcare nonprofits. So it would require them to disclose if they have any contributions from pharmaceutical companies. Uh, third portion of the bill creates this sort of lobbyist-like registration system for pharmaceutical sales representatives who would be required to report, you know, which doctors they visit and which samples of which drugs they handed out. So it's all sort of aimed at just creating a more transparent process. And, you know, the healthcare industry, there's just so many different parts. It's sort of hard for the average person to know, you know, what's going on, you know, who's paying for what, you know, who's close to who. It is kind of an opaque process. And so that's sort of the, the aim of this bill. That's sort of Senator Kinsella's aim is to make things a little bit more transparent. So enough on that. We've talked a lot about what's been going on this week at the legislature. I wanted to talk a little bit about what's been going on in Washington and then talk a little bit about 2018 as well. It's never too early to talk about 2018, right? It's 2018 <laughs> right now, right? It, obviously. I think it's in 2018 since the day after the election. Um, I wanted to start, though, with the big news of the day. We're recording this on Thursday. As most of you know, we do this on Thursday nights. So the AHCA, the repeal and replace of the Affordable Care Act, passed the House today. Uh, Nevada's lone Republican congressman, Mark Amaday, voted for the AHCA after saying that he would be a no. What happened? Yeah, so Mark Amaday represents northern Nevada, uh, the area in Reno, out of the rural counties, and Somewhat surprisingly, given that he's not really in a swing district, he has a very safe Republican seat. He went on MSNBC a whole bunch of times over the past six weeks and said, I'm against this. I'm going to oppose any healthcare overhaul bill that will affect the people who 
receive Medicaid under the expansion that was created under the Affordable Care Act. So something happened in the last 72 hours that made uh, the congressman change his mind. He was heavily lobbied by the president, by the vice president. Um, He put out a lot of reasoning today. He sent out an email to constituents. He sent out an email to members of the press. His uh, rationale is basically that the newest amendment, the newest form of the AHCA, gives him enough, I guess, belief that the people who receive Medicaid benefits under the expanded ACA won't be affected. So like the statewide population, which numbers in around 200 or 300,000 people, won't be affected. It, you know, the governor is still opposed to it. Uh, Senator Dean Heller, another Republican, is still opposed to it. This is, you know, there's a lot of D.C. dynamics we really don't get to like touch on because we all live in Carson City, which is a, a couple hours away from there. So it was interesting to see that he, who was a strong no for such a long time, was able to be uh, kind of flipped back into the yes column. Right. And he had gone on, you know, MSNBC during the last iteration of it, even ahead of this vote and gone on and say, you know, that he was still uncomfortable with that. But like you mentioned, you know, he was, you know, visited with the vice president. He visited with the Health and Human Services Secretary and Speaker Paul Ryan and then, you know, received a phone call from the president. And it seems like something, you know, all in there, uh, you know, changed his mind or gave him the the comfort that, you know, the, the Medicaid expansion in Nevada, you know, wouldn't be drastically impacted. Yeah. One interesting thing that he did was in his letter to constituents was uh, give a little shout out to a bill by Senator Pat Spearman, who happens to be of the other party that would preserve essential health benefits at parts of the Affordable Care Act in state law. There's a bunch of bills that do that in the legislature. We've gone over a couple of them on the NevadaIndependent.com, which you can go and read at any time. Uh, but it was interesting to see him kind of, you know, rely on state lawmakers of a def- different party. I don't think him and Pat Spearman really line up on too many issues, but that's one where he said, you know, they're doing this and they're probably going to get it passed. So it could be worse, I guess. Right. Well, and we have seen a lot of that reaction from Democrats, both in that bill and in others, you know, you know, preserving the the contraceptive benefits for women and these preventative health care parts and, you know, ensuring that children can stay on their parents' insurance plans until 26. And so these parts of the, the Affordable Care Act, the uh, pre-existing conditions, you know, making sure that insurers still have to cover everyone. We've seen a lot of this be worked into state law with the goal of sort of codifying it in case something like this happens. And, and now we're seeing that start to happen. Um, really quick for people who may not have been following, what happens next for that bill? It has to go to the Senate, right? What are kind of talks around that? I'm glad like, you've asked me, now. the constitutional law expert of the group. Um, so yeah, it'll go to the Senate, I believe. There's been a few reports saying they're going to try and write their own bill. Um, as I said earlier, Dean Heller, our other Republican member of Congress and our state or senator who's up for re-election in 2018, believe he came out um, against the bill as it is currently written. The governor also came out. So, you know, it's a they're they're out of one ballpark and into another to like totally ruin a metaphor. Uh, right. So it'll it'll continue percolating. I think what's interesting for us on a statewide level um, is that we're in sort of the process of the 120-day legislative session where we can't change a lot. So if they radically change how Medicaid dollars flow into the state, we talk a lot about the state budget when we were talking about the economic forum. That's $8.1 billion in the general fund. But there's another. There's billions and billions of dollars out there of federal funds that come into the state to fund all these programs. So if that changes, like, we got 31 days to get the stuff figured out. We're getting to a point where there's no way, I don't think, any massive changes on the federal level can be figured out in the regular session, and this might have to come to a special session, which right. everyone wants to be in Carson City in July or August, right? Oh, yeah, we all do. I mean, isn't that, the, isn't that when there's finally nice weather and oh, you get to enjoy the... Oh, yeah. June, yes. Michelle's a big, big Carson City advocate. <laughs> 
Um, I also wanted to ask you, Riley, you wrote about um, Todd Ricketts, the influential part owner of the Chicago Cubs and President Donald Trump's former pick for Deputy Secretary of Commerce. He's hosting a Washington, D.C. fundraiser for Nevada Attorney General Adam Laxalt. There will be a bunch of big-name Republican donors there. What does that mean? Yeah, so Adam Laxalt is the Attorney General, and he is all but announced to run for governor. Um, it was announced uh, or reported by the editor, John Ralston, uh, last week, I believe, that he's having an event with Scott Walker and Doug Ducey, two governors. Uh, Scott Walker is the head of the Republican Governors Association. This is just, it's a pile-on at this point. We reported back in January that Laxalt had raised, I think, a million and a half dollars. He, no, he raised more than a million, and he had a million and a half cash on hand. So he's got a huge war chest. Everyone has said, like, we're not running for governor other than him. You know, the this was just like another box to check, basically. And if you look on the website and you can see the invitation, and, and it's just all of these influential D.C. conservative types. Um, so... You know, it's, it's what's going to happen. He'll probably announce sometime after session would be my guess. But this is just another, you know, the the wave keeps growing bigger and bigger for Adam Laxall. Right. He's not running, but he's doing all of these things that signal he's running. So. Yeah. Um, another interesting thing for 2018, uh, which I reported on, was Republican Senate Leader Michael Roberson is chairing a newly formed political action committee that's seeking to place a measure on the ballot, on the 2018 ballot, preventing sanctuary cities. We've seen a lot of this discussion happen throughout the session. Senator Roberson has been pretty vocal about his opposition to sanctuary cities. There was a bill from Democratic Senator Ivana Kinsella that would have sort of sought to limit the ability of law enforcement to do certain immigration-related things, whether that's actually cooperating with federal immigration authorities to do certain immigration-related activities. A different version of her bill would have just prevented them from asking someone's immigration status when they, you know, pull them over for a broken taillight or what have you. So we saw a lot of a lot of rhetoric from the, from uh, Senator Roberson on this, you know, saying that this was a horrible bill. It was the worst piece of legislation he'd seen in all of his time at the legislature. And so you know, this is sort of an outgrowth of, of a lot of those sentiments. Um, there aren't a lot of details about the ballot measure yet. We just know that the committee backing it, Prevent Sanctuary Cities, was formed late last week. And that the language of the measure, which will come in the form of a constitutional initiative, doesn't exist yet. So we're still kind of waiting with bated breath to see what form that takes, you know, what the actual language looks like. Um, but it's kind of interesting to see this conversation continue. You know, it's something that Senator Roberson has been pretty strong on. It's kind of an issue that he owns. And so having this continue through the, the 2018 and then 2020 cycles will be interesting because as our listeners may or may not know, as a constitutional amendment, it would need to be twice passed by voters before it actually amends the Constitution. But a lot of this is really preliminary. The committee can't even start collecting the roughly 110,000 signatures it needs to qualify for the ballot until September 1st. So it's sort of a waiting game until then. But it's, you know, Senator Roberson is committed to this. You know, he said it's an important issue. It's important enough to be in the Constitution. I asked him that earlier this week. And I said, you know, why not wait till 2020 and have this be a statutory initiative petition where it you know, doesn't need though that twice, you know, doesn't need to pass the ballot twice. It's not, you know, enshrined in the Constitution. And he said, yes, yes, it's important. It needs to be in the Constitution. And so that's sort of where we are now. We'll have to see what happens with that as, you know, the campaign heats up. I just really enjoy it's easier to change the Constitution through the ballot initiative process and it's <laughs> like change state law. That's totally yeah. Nevada You know, some stuff. people some people have made that argument. They've said, you know, I don't want to go through the legislature. I don't want to have the statutory initiative process. I just want to put it to the voters twice and, and be done with that. Yeah. And, 
you know, that we have options question, here. That was the question four, folks. <laughs> question for, four, yeah. <laughs> it, it was a sales tax abatement, I think, on like critical medical equipment. And they said, yeah, we couldn't get the bill passed last session, so we got a ballot question. But yeah. the difference was in last cycle, I mean, the, the numbers you had to get, it was easy, yeah. relatively speaking, to get a, a, something on the ballot measure. I, I think it was uh, just a little over 55,000 signatures mm -hmm. you needed yeah. because the, the signature number is determined by the turnout from the previous election. So yeah. you're basing it on a 2014 low turnout election. Yeah. You only need 55,000 qualified signatures. Um, so I think that's what struck me about this uh, proposed sanctuary city, um, you know, constitutional effort. How realistic is it um, if it was hard enough? You know, I think we're talking 110,000 signatures. That's about what Solar City and their paid army of signature gatherers was able to get right. um, for a, a thing to bring back rooftop solar. Right. Um, they really overdid it. They got way more than they needed. So something about the sanctuary cities, I mean, it just seems it's a very hard bar to reach. Um, you have to get way more than 100. And, 10 signatures because a lot get disqualified. So right. I, I'm wondering how serious the the proposal really is. Sure. I think the unsaid thing here that we haven't mentioned is that Michael Roberson has all but announced he's running for lieutenant governor. Um, I, I had a story, I think, two weeks ago that uh, Robert Eitoven, who's a campaign consultant for Adam Blacksalt, had formed a stand with Roberson pack. So, you know, the dominoes are falling in place. It, it, he's all but announced. I think he made like a joke tweet at some point like a month ago that hashtag Roberson for LG and it had some like old guy with a beard because he's also bearded. <laughs> um, so that I think is what's really playing into a lot of it is that, you know, you need to have something to run on. And if he's going to be the anti-sanctuary cities guy, that's, mm -hmm. that's a platform. And as we know, he's had trouble in Republican primaries before. So maybe that'll help he's this time. He's definitely building his platform in a lot of ways with that. He's taken a stand against um, criminal justice reform type bills. I think we saw a mini Twitter war today. Um, where he's bashing uh, Aaron Ford for backing the restoring uh, voter rights to ex-felons. So he's he's developing his brand here right before our eyes. Um, it's a sanctuary city and anti-voting uh, rights for felons platform mm -hmm. developing. He's very flexible after raising $1.1 billion in taxes in 2015. <laughs> So I guess we'll have to see how that sort of continues over the last, you know, 33 days we have in the session, which is a good segue to sort of our last section here, which is that we do only have 33 days left in the session. That's four, you know, full weeks, your typical Monday through Friday week. So let's talk a little bit about what comes next. I wanted to ask you guys, since you guys have both covered sessions before, do you think you get, do you think that things are clipping along like they need to be, or do things seem to be happening more slowly than they were in past sessions? Well, it's an interesting question because we both, uh, well, Michelle was here in 2011, but last session was my first one. And it was just a strange session to begin with, with Republican control and a lot of people who hadn't been in office before. So they did pass a lot more bills at this point, but that's just a product of, you know, one party controlling all branches of government. You know, you can go back and look at um, different sessions on like what, what number of bills have passed. I think this one is, they've exempted a lot of bills. They put a lot of bills in the budget committees and just kind of let them percolate and not move towards the governor, there's a lot of anticipation that there's going to be like this end game rush where they're going to send over 200, 300 bills at the same time to the governor once they like they figure out the final negotiations and that still needs to happen. Uh, they're running against a clock and as we all know, if they're not done by midnight on, I believe it's June 5th uh, or June 6th, then that's it, special session or else. Um, so we'll 
we'll see. They still have a lot of time left, but I think the those sort of end game negotiations that uh, get whispered about is still need to get kind of figured out. Right. I wanted to ask about, you know, some of the governor's priorities this session, you know, education savings accounts, attacks on recreational marijuana, juvenile justice reform, substance abuse. What's going on with those bills? Well, we've seen that all of those bills have gotten exemptions. Uh, and that means because they have a fiscal impact, they're not going to have to be held to the same deadlines as standard bills. Um, but they haven't come up for floor votes. Uh, they haven't really been heard in, in at least two weeks for a lot of these bills. Um, they're kind of hanging in limbo. And um, again, this is, this is a product, like Riley was saying, you're not in a, a one-party system like you were last time where things move smoothly and you can ram through whatever. I mean, they have to trade certain things. Um, so... They, they built up a little leverage by putting these bills to the side um, and can hold them hostage or wh whatever they need to do um, to kind of e extract some things that they want from, from the governor. So, right. um, But I think it's, it's been causing some tension that they haven't been moving at all. And, and we've heard, of course, from Republicans who are um, upset that the ESAs are not being heard. Um, ESAs are... ESAs are education <laughs> savings accounts for those of you that are unfamiliar with that. That's when you uh, get public funds to use towards private school tuition or whatever qualified education expense you have. Um, so Republicans are not only hoping to get the $60 million that the governor put in his budget um, towards that ESA program that Democrats do not like, um, but they're also hoping to implement some policy changes, kind of restructure where the program is at. Um, there's some kind of sub substantial policy issues that are in these bills. So if they never get a hearing and if they just kind of get pushed through at the very end or get a hearing at the very end, you're not going to really suss out some of these um, issues that are in that bill. So, so I think Republicans are hoping um, that this gets resolved sooner or later. Um, but of course, this is one of the most hotly contested issues, so it's not going to go down easily. Yeah, right. ESA is specifically educational savings accounts. Um, I think it was whispered about or talked about a lot before the session started. We did a story where we talked to every Republican senator who said we won't support a budget that doesn't have funding for ESAs in it. But now we've seen, like this week specifically, you and I, Michelle, talked to Paul Anderson, who's the Assembly Republican leader. And he said he's not going to support a budget that doesn't have ESAs in it. He said, you know, a lot of his caucus just has like one or two bills that made it through the process. A lot of their stuff died. So they don't really have a lot of, um, you know, cards the Dems can play against them. It's, they ran on ESAs. It's been a priority for them. It's one of the big, you know, the things they put on mailers and they can like campaign on. So there's no reason for them not to negotiate. I think he said like, you know, they have all these, Democrats have all these policy ideas they want to get past this session, whether it's, um, renewable energy goals, whether it's criminal justice reform, whether it's raising the minimum wage, they have all, this big laundry list of things they want to do. For Republicans, educational savings accounts and that $60 million, I don't think they're willing to even put that on the table. And I, you know, the governor's from Reno. It's not a long drive from here to there. I, I think you'd be okay to be here for a special session. And, you know, it, it's going to come down to who has the most leverage and what kind of deal they can cut over the next 30 days. Yeah, and I think it's an open question. How, how, 
stridently against ESAs are Democrats really. You know, they'll they'll say that they the program is dead, they don't want to see it, but it's still the bill is still very much alive, very much in play. Um, talked to Kelvin Atkinson today, who's the one of the top um, ranking Democrats, and he, you know, it's still very much part of negotiations. He said he hopes it dies, but notice he said he hopes, and and it's it's still very much alive, and I think they're very much going to be negotiating on that point. Great. I wanted to ask you guys a little bit more about this concept of the end game. I know we talk about it a lot like that, but you know the average person out there I don't think thinks about the end game of the legislature. It's kind of a strange way to think about things. But when we think about education savings accounts being a part of that, and like you mentioned, these other measures Democrats want to get through, I mean, what do we think is going to be part of that final negotiation? I know you mentioned energy and you mentioned criminal justice reform. I mean, what could that final end game look like? I think there's a lot of um, election or voting related things there. We did another laundry list of those bills and there's like 30 of them and 15 all do the same thing. But Democrats have a ton of those to either expand early voting, same day voter registration, having like voting centers. So I think that's one that's going to be up for discussion. Minimum wage is another one. Criminal justice reform is one that um, both uh, Assembly Speaker Jason Fireson and Senate Majority Leader Aaron Ford have a very strong interest in getting something passed this session. And renewable energy, of course, is a big one, especially with question three coming. There's a lot of, I think, momentum for, uh, you know, some sort of like pro-renewable push, whether that's through the form of community solar gardens or raising the state's uh, renewable portfolio standard. Um, these are all things I think that are kind of being negotiated and haggled with. Mm-hmm. One of the things you touched on, you know, criminal justice reform, I know you and I, Michelle, have been looking into that a little bit. And, you know, we saw another hearing on you know, Senator Ford's bill today, you know, what's been going on with that? And what do we think could happen with sort of all of those, you know, myriad bills? Yeah, well, um, those were subject to a lot of party lines at the last deadline, a lot of party line votes, Republicans um, kind of more taking the tough on crime stance and Democrats saying we want to, you know, give rights back to the prisoners and bring computers back to the prisoners, those kinds of things. my sense is that, um, you know, while it's a party line right now, those are negotiable. Um, I don't think Republicans are completely dead set against giving um, certain concessions to prisoners, especially if there's an argument that they could um, be money-saving in the long run or improve the quality of life, get get prisoners' jobs when they leave. I don't think anyone's absolutely adamantly dead set against that. But um, it is an interesting political uh battle here and as I mentioned before you know you've got to um you've got to kind of navigate for these politicians you've got to navigate the line of um you know not alienating the police and kind of the the crime victims by being too um I guess generous (laughs) to prisoners at this session with these bills um and at the same time you know for Ford and Frierson they've talked about the you know they they the racial implications of some of these policies that have been implemented over the years that have led to like mass incarceration. So I think there's, they want to leave this session, you know, having done something to that, but they've also got to balance. Um, it's not always popular to, um, decriminalize things or lighten penalties. That's just not always going to, going to be a winning issue. So you see that balancing act, um, you saw Ford today talking about his 
bill to restore voting rights. Um, he said, you know, I would like it to be, I would like us to be like Vermont and Maine where, where prisoners just never lose their voting rights and they can um, vote even from prison, but I'm not going to go for that. <laughs> I'm going to go for something um, that's less lenient that you would get your rights back after a year into your probation. Um, so, yeah. So looking a little bit more short term, what should people be keeping an eye out for next week? What's on the immediate horizon? Well, we're going to go see uh, on Monday is a big day. They're going to vote on the regulations for recreational marijuana. So obviously Nevada voters have approved this in November that adults can use recreational marijuana. The Department of Taxation has been working for the past few months on just, you know, designing regulations that would allow the program to start in the summer, as opposed to the ballot measure says it needs a start in January. This would be an early start program. So the tax commission is going to be voting on some regulations on Monday. Um, so I've been kind of catching up on a, a hearing that they had this week, getting lawmakers up to speed on these regulations. Um, there's a dispute, uh, I wrote about this a while back, but liquor distributors want to get in on the marijuana distribution business, but the way that the Department of Taxation is designing it, um, they may not get this privileged first dibs spot, um, so that's still kind of an ongoing issue, and you heard lawmakers um, concerned about, is the federal government going to crack down on these businesses, and you know, Ira Hansen was asking, are we the, is marijuana the only thing that we have that uh, we tax and that's the federal government doesn't allow? So there's, you know, there's a lot of those issues that are still percolating in legislators' minds. Um, but at, if, if everything goes as planned, we're going to have recreational marijuana as early as July 1st this year. Wow. And a lot of it does depend on like what local municipalities depend on, right? Because I, I look through the regs because that's the kind of exciting life I lead to read <laughs> all these really boring regulations. Um, but one of them is that it does require approval of municipalities. I know, like, I think Henderson, I think, like, Reno, a lot of, uh, like, city governments and, and county commissions have had concerns. So it's another thing that has to kind of get figured out before you can start buying your, your marijuana legally. Yeah, the Department of Taxation said on our end, we're going to be ready by July 1st, barring any disaster but it's really going to depend on these local municipalities and are they are they getting cold feet about it in some way um, are they going to throw up some more barriers uh, for these businesses so so there's a lot of variables you got a lot of levels of regulation and government right what's up next on the horizon for energy you guys are like the energy experts of the house what's what's coming up well let me enlighten you megan um <laughs> On Wednesday, there's another meeting of Lieutenant Governor Mark Hutchison's uh, Big Energy Choice Subcommittee. It's this group that we've talked about before on the podcast of about 25 or so members of big casinos, businesses, energy stakeholders. They have representative from an Indian tribe. It's basically everyone who would be affected by energy choice. It's question three. It was approved on the ballot in 2016. It would do regulate Nevada's energy market. It would kind of break up Envy Energy and would give us retail choice and who we decide to to purchase our energy from. So there's a lot of open questions with that. We're going to hear from them again on Wednesday. We're going to hear from some national regulatory folks from FERC, um, which is an acronym I can't remember what it stands for, and Michelle's going to help me out right now. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Yeah, that one. <laughs> um, so we're going to hear from a few people from there, a few people from Texas, Pennsylvania, other states that have um, either successfully or unsuccessfully deregulated and things that they've learned. So 
it will be interesting to get in these like deep energy, you know, dives during the middle of session, but it's, it's important stuff. And there's a lot of bills out there that are kind of dependent on what happens with this committee and what happens with energy choice. Yeah. Yeah. The whole, you know, what we're hearing a lot is this is sort of uncharted waters for Nevada to open up its energy market. Nevada's kind of unique in its size and a lot of other factors. So, you know, we're trying to look towards Texas, which seems to be viewed as the gold standard um, of, of states that have gone to open markets. So we're going to hear from that guy, hear from Pennsylvania, who's also done it, and hear from California, who did it in the 90s and had some rough patches afterwards. So um, it'll be interesting to hear from those other states. Maybe you can give us some guidance and real specifics, and obviously the... The issue here is how do we get a handle on opening the markets? It's a very complicated topic. Yeah, and we've run into this this week just in reporting on things like the net metering bill, which has to do with people's rooftop solar installations. If you saw people like, you know, burning effigies at PUC meetings in 2016, that whole issue, they're trying to solve this session. But there's this whole open question of what happens when we have a retail energy choice market. And it's kind of being taken as a certainty because it passed like on an 80 to 20 or 75 to 25 percent margin. But, you know, what happens with net metering? What happens with the renewable portfolio standards? So there's a lot of, like, those interlocking questions that would make for a great story that Nevada Independent should look into. We should do a story. Yeah. Look into that. <laughs> Which is, you know, what we aim to do, right? There's all these, you know, policy issues, like really complicated policy issues that lawmakers are trying to deal with in 120 days and come up with the best, you know, solutions. You don't have to come back later in a special session or wait until the next legislative session to deal with. And... I know we've been trying to work through, you know, some of these issues through our stories. So you can always check out and look for more of that on the Nevada Independent. Well, with that, I think that's all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. But we want to know what you think. So if you have ideas, criticism, or something you liked about the episode, please email us at ideas at thenvindy.com. And please check out our site if you haven't already at thenevadaindependent.com. A big thank you to our producer and intern extraordinaire, Joey Lovato, and to Michelle and Riley, my lovely colleagues and roommates. I'm Megan Messerly. Thanks so much for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week.